if you somehow find yourself transported back to medieval Wales a thousand years ago, watch out for the snakes. Get bit, and there's a good chance the local healer would force you to endure a strange cure. He'd find a rooster, pluck out a few tail feathers, and then press its naked bottom against your wound. Human intelligence has produced plenty of wonderful things. It also produced this belief that you can cure a snake bite with a chicken butt. From a certain perspective, you might say that poor rooster is smarter than we are. I'm Boyce Eppel, and you're listening to Rewild, a podcast of conversations rethinking the human place in a more-than-human world. This week, I'm speaking to Justin Gregg, a science writer and animal cognition researcher. Justin's latest book is titled, If Nietzsche Were a Narwhal, What Animal Intelligence Tells Us About Human Stupidity. Looking at everything from garden slugs to his own chicken named Ghost, Justin makes a compelling case that our species is not as advanced as we'd like to believe. Welcome to Rewild. Justin, welcome to the Rewild podcast. It's great to be here. Thank you for coming on. I hope you'll excuse me for jumping right to the end of the book, but I found sort of the epilogue really spoke to what drew me to this book and what I think a lot of our listeners might want to learn from the book. And you talk in that epilogue about sort of this habit of yours in the springtime when slugs come out into your gardens and you're kind of carefully looking every morning to make sure you're not going to back up over any slugs. And so I wanted to just start there and share with our listeners why it is that you are worried about slugs. Yeah, in this description I have of my morning ritual, there are slugs like literally right in the path of the tires of the car that I'm about to turn on and drive away. So in that moment, I'm making this decision of like, okay, do I just drive over a slug or do I take a couple minutes here and move the slugs so I don't drive over them? And I now always look for slugs and always move the slugs. In that moment, it seems bizarre to me to just decide to kill something for no real reason when I could save it. And that goes to a lot of the argument of the book is what's going on inside the mind of animals. You can make a pretty strong argument from a scientific standpoint that a slug would have some sort of conscious experience to some extent, some subjective awareness of pain and pleasure at the very least. And so for me, I mean, it's not a hard well thought out rights or welfare philosophy. It just seems bonkers to me to drive over an animal that could feel pain or pleasure and remove it from the world for no reason. In the book, there's a line that I really love. It said, what a miracle to exist here and now and have the capacity to experience this world. I want to do my part to make sure that I am not the reason a slug's life prematurely ends, which got to me to, to the whole heart of, again, why I was so interested in this question of what is intelligence? What is the worth of intelligence? And yeah, that is one of the questions you raise early in the book. So yeah, what is intelligence? Yeah, that's what it starts from is, is that question. And I very, um, I hope deftly fail to answer it in the introduction. I quite purposely set out to not answer it because within the field of animal cognition, there are so many definitions of what intelligence could be. And they're often very different from within human psychology and certainly software systems like AI. We're all talking about intelligence but we're all talking about kind of different things. And there's some general notions that crop up in a lot of definitions about something being able to solve problems with a lack of information. So there's not a ton of information, so it has to extrapolate and make a decision to do something based on a lack of information. And that seems to be at the heart of most definitions of intelligence. But what I'm saying in the book is like, look, we all know what we're talking about when we say 
that your cat is intelligent or a snail is not as intelligent as a cat. We have these sort of tacit understandings of what we mean. And usually it's like, well, if it acts in a human-like way. So the book is like, well, what does it mean to act in a human-like way? So then I just pull apart every cognitive thing I could think of that would fit under that umbrella of intelligence. You do a really great job of that. And along the way, kind of give us a glimpse of how other animals experience the world, right? So you talk about what happens if we stop being so obsessed with how we're more intelligent and different from other species and listen to stories that other species are telling us. And so I would love to hear kind of if there are particular stories of other species that stick out to you that kind of help you to reorient this common sense that humans may be the most intelligent species. Yeah, if, if I'm using intelligence to mean the stuff that humans do, then the problem is we're always looking at another animal to see if it does those things, which is always, as anyone who studies animal behavior, a bonkers standpoint, because really when you're studying animal behavior, you want to know how it evolved to do what it did in its own niche. So dolphins are the classic example for me because I studied dolphins. And comparing the way a human thinks to a dolphin is sort of nonsensical because they live in a very different world. And specifically, they can echolocate and we cannot. So in a dolphin's world, their primary sense in the water is this biosonar bouncing a click sound out into the water, listening to the reflections and then sort of getting a mental image of the world that way. But what I ended up studying was when there's a couple dolphins swimming next to each other, they can listen in on each other's echolocation and receive images from being in proximity to each other. Hey, you can imagine if, if we were sitting on a couch together and whatever you were looking at, I saw too. How might that change the way our social relationship work? It would be fundamentally different. It's so bizarre, we can't possibly conceive of it. And yet it's normal to a dolphin. And so when we think about what is intelligence or we want to study thinking, we wouldn't even include what a dolphin is doing in that because that's not part of human thinking. And that's what bugged me. I'm like, you know what? Ah, we really need to incorporate all the animal stuff and all the things that animals do and stop trying to label it as intelligent. Like we usually mean that to mean good or complex or whatever. So if we just remove all that stuff and just say, well, what is it that dolphins do? How do they think? What is their sensory system like? And then what do humans do? And how do we think? And what is our sensory system like? And you can just make comparisons that way in a non-judgmental way. That seems a better way, I think, to approach animal thinking. You are clear, though, that some things do seem to set humans apart. So what is different in our intelligence? Well, that's the million dollar question, because it's easy for an animal cognition person to be like, look, all thinking is worth the same in terms of evolution, which is true. But now you have to argue with people who are like, yeah, but humans can go to the moon and dolphins cannot. And so that is true. And that is interesting because looking at all the complicated things that humans clearly do that other animals cannot you have to then ask, well, what is it about our thinking that allows us to do that stuff? How do we get to the moon when dolphins can't? And then much of the book is about me picking out a trait that humans have, which animals do not have at all sometimes, or sometimes they don't have in as complex a form and see all the way that those things intermingle to create the human mind, which allows us to do the complicated things that we now are able to do. So that's an interesting question. And it doesn't have to be a value judgment. As I make a point in the book, like, yeah, we can think in complex ways, but it's potentially terrible for our species and the planet. So just because we're complex in an intelligent human way isn't necessarily a good thing. Yeah, yeah. And we're definitely going to spend some time on that. That is one of the questions I have been grappling with in some of my own writing. So what you say, what sets us apart is sort of we're a why specialist. What does that mean? 
Yeah, we're really interested in cause and effect. So not just that two things are correlated, but we want to know what causes other things to happen. I mean, that's the basis of science, but it's also the basis of just general curiosity for us as a species. So when you look at the way animals learn, it's usually through associative learning. They can very easily learn that when one thing happens, something else might follow. And that's such a powerful tool. It's the primary way all animals, including humans, deal with the world. Like it's been useful for hundreds of millions of years. But then this why specialist thing is humans like obsessive interest sometimes in trying to figure out why things are happening. Like, why is the sun rise? Like, well, we've been answering that for hundreds of thousands of years. It's usually some supernatural force. And then we dipped into learning about space and physics and understanding about solar systems. Now we've got sort of a better answer. But we've always been interested. Whereas a, a dolphin, probably not asking that question, doesn't need to know for its world. You analyze this Y capability in terms of, I think, of an evolutionary perspective, right? Of what does this mean for our species long-term, our planet long-term? Will our ability to reason be helpful for the survival of our species? On one hand, it looks like it is pretty darn useful, right? Because like the Y specialism, it produces things like vaccines and just like the fact that we live in these cities with all this access to food and healthcare, it's absolutely phenomenal. And that's obviously a net benefit. And there's so many humans on this planet compared to other primates that we're clearly benefiting from our intelligence. But then you have this long-term problem, looking at our species a few hundred years down the road, and then we get into all the existential crises that we're currently obsessed with at the moment. Uh, nuclear threats, like what's going on in Europe again, it's rearing its head. That might annihilate us as a species. And nuclear weapons are a product of our, of our intelligence. And then the unavoidable climate crisis. We are hurtling towards complete destruction of the Earth. Destruction in the sense that it will make it uninhabitable for most of us at some point in the next 100 or 200 years. And that's a direct result of all of our activities on this planet. So many of us with these combustion engines, etc. So again, a product of our in intelligence. So that's why I say like, yeah, as much good as it brings and does bring to my life and to yours and to everyone's, it might make us all dead. And so from an evolutionary perspective, that's bad. So that's why I say intelligence in the end might be a really bad solution for our species to have evolved. The book was interesting to write in the sense that I was having that argument with my friend Brendan, who I talk about, who's like, you're an idiot. Obviously, like vaccines and space travel is objectively a good thing. And so I had to really grapple with, like, what is a good thing? What is good in the universe? I am not qualified to do that necessarily, but I'm a human like everyone else. That's what we do. And so for the sake of the book, what I did come up with was like, yeah, within biology, good seems to be the thing that produces pleasure because brains are wired to make us behave, that we have to make decisions. And so they've created these emotional responses of pleasure to reward our brains and bodies from doing the right thing. So in that sense, biology or natural selection has selected pleasure as the thing that we want. So that could be described as a good thing. And so from that standpoint, then you can ask, well, is all of our intelligence a good thing or not? Is it producing more pleasure or more pain for us as a species or for other species on this planet? And what is your takeaway on that? My takeaway is almost... We could be doing that, but we don't. And so, no, human intelligence mostly produces more pain than benefit for the planet as a whole. And even within our own lives, I'm saying like, I get so much pleasure out of the human stuff that we do, like watching Netflix or whatever, or listening to music. Those things require human intelligence to understand. And I love it. It's great. But on balance, I'm probably 
fairly miserable when compared to my cat, I would imagine. I think my cat may be happier than me. So, so I'm not sure I'm benefiting from all of my Netflix and my thinking about religion or whatnot. And you, you have a phrase specifically for some of this. You talk about this, what you call prognostic myopia. You make this sound almost like a myopia that is inherent to our biology. So, so define that term for us and talk about sort of how it is that, that we are stuck with this and may not be able to overcome it. Yeah. So humans, like all animals, our brains are designed for rewarding us through emotion for doing the right or punishing us for the wrong behavior in the moment, right? So like if we're hungry, we eat, we feel better. That's the most basic sort of thing. But most of your and my life are, are run by this. You know, what I'm going to do in the next hour or two is all dictated by how I'm feeling. I have a very strong attachment to right now. But because we're humans, we can think about the future. I can think about what's on my calendar for next week. I can think about my retirement savings for 20 years down the road. And I can think about what the planet might be like in 200 years. These are intellectual capacities that we have that other animals don't to the same extent. But that emotional response to like 40 years down the road isn't anywhere near as strong as it is to my desire to eat a Snickers bar right now, for example. And so like, yes, I can think about my retirement savings, but I have to go trick myself into saving for retirement because I don't feel as strongly about my future self as I do my current self. And so it's that disconnect between our ability to think about the far future and our biology, which tells us to the react to the here and now. You give an example about lawns, which I think is a surprising example of prognostic myopia. What's up with lawns? Why is that a concern to you? I love lawns because at the moment, there's like, I, I have all the facts in the book, which I can't off the top of my head remember, like the amount of lawn coverage in the United States is bonkers. There's a huge percentage of our ground, our earth is dedicated toward lawn maintenance and lawns do nothing for us. They, they cropped up from a couple hundred years ago from these ideas about prosperity. They're sort of tied into the American dream. They have been since the time of Jefferson. And so they're part of our cultural identity, lawns, and we all want them, but they are not only useless in the sense that there's no animals that really can benefit from the lawn at all. Like you keep cutting things short, so you're not going to get a lot of rodents in there. Like you keep killing all the moths and the insects. So they're just sort of a, a wasteland, which is a real bummer. No flowers for the bees. But to maintain them, we have to dump so much water onto them. Wasting water for our lawns is just, it's absurd when you see the numbers. And then of course, all the gasoline that we have to burn much of which we end up spilling into the ground. Like they couldn't be worse for the environment, but sometime in the past 200 years, we got into them and now we're just stuck with them. And this is a typical human thing. We just had this crazy behavior that we evolved unexamined and we'll keep doing it until it kills us all. I hate lawns, in other words. <laughs> I have a lot of hate with them. Like I sort of like being on my lawn, but you make this point of like, it's part prognostic myopia. It's part a different kind of myopia in my point of view, which is like, it's hard for us to see all of the interconnections of the world we live in. And like, seems like it's the norm. It, you want it because it's the norm and you can't see all the destruction it does. I have to fight every fiber of my being not to cut my front lawn. It's difficult because it's so ingrained in me culturally. So yes, intellectually, I hate them, but I'm fighting this, like, like you're talking about, this desire to have a nice lawn to play, you know, lawn darts or volleyball or badminton on. I just, I can't, it's hard. Right. Right. And it's an example. I mean, you talk about if we were able to time travel back a few hundred years to some of the early advocates of this kind of landscaping and say, like, look at all the bad things this did. It's, it would be almost impossible to make that logical leap and make it go down a different path. Yeah. Like if you could convince the original architects of lawns 
not to invent them because they're going to be bad for society. They, they don't care. They don't care about 200 years in the future. They care about that gig that they're going to get at Monticello or whatever, making a beautiful lawn. That's what they're obsessed with. For yourself or even your children or your grandchildren, you can kind of plan for them. But like six generations out, it's just utterly meaningless. Like who, who cares? So that's prognostic myopia in a nutshell. We just have a hard time caring. One thing that almost inevitably happens is as you look at prognostic myopia, maybe not inevitably, but when you're talking about these potential evolutionary consequences of our, our intelligence, you get somewhat pessimistic, it seems, right? And we've discussed this, I guess, but what do you see as our, our future? Yeah, it's, it really is, how would you possibly know how things are going to turn out? And there's sort of the optimists and the pessimists. So the optimists would say, look, yes, we've created these problems, but we have this ability to solve them also through technology or through changing culture or legislation. It can be done. And yes, absolutely, on paper, 100%, it can be done. And we are sometimes moving in the right direction. But then me, the pessimist, is like, yeah, but if you look at the history of all humanity, when have we ever come together as a species, let alone as like two neighbors, to solve a mutual problem that could affect us on such a scale that all of our species could be saved, like in Star Trek kind of thing. To me, it sounds like science fiction to think that humans will ever unite against anything other than an alien invasion. I think there will be some valiant efforts, you know, the United Nations and their, you know, the Paris Agreement, there are attempts to do stuff. But my God, like we've known about this problem quite clearly for at least two or three decades and nothing has changed specifically around oil extraction and burning of fossil fuels that's only ever increased, only ever increased and seems to be set to only increase. So I'm like, I don't, it just seems delusional to think anything other than it's going to be the end of us. It's hard not to come to this conclusion of like how much happier all of the other animals would be were we not here. Is that something you think about of like how to use, how to thread this needle of, of recognizing the limits of our intelligence without sort of becoming really pessimistic about the capabilities of humanity? It is hard to not just be fatalistic and upset about it. And I'm not offering any concrete solutions on what to do in the book because I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm just identifying the problem for the most part. But yeah, so the, the human intellect doesn't have to be an issue in the sense that for 200,000 years when the first sort of uh, homo sapiens were walking around, we weren't causing massive, huge problems. Like we were barely eking out a living next to chimpanzees and everything was cool. Like indigenous populations, for the most part, here in North America specifically, were not causing massive problems. The massive problems came with the ideology of the West and the Industrial Revolution and all this sort of stuff. So is there a version of us being intelligent like we are that is still on this planet that's not destroying the planet? I think so. So in that sense, it's positive. In our current format, I do not see how my lifestyle can be sustained for three or 400 years. Like something's going to have to change drastically and that's going to hurt. Your book does not tread into this, but some things I read just sort of like, I can't wait for us to be gone because how good it will be for everything else. I know, oh yes, I know what you mean. Yeah, no, I, I mean, in a sense, of course, that would be true. If we had never existed, there would be more species on the planet and more of the earth would be untouched and therefore there'd be a diversity of species, et cetera. But I'm not that misanthropic in the sense that like we are also a product of biology and this just is another thing that has happened on the earth. And if it leads to a problem that will be resolved eventually, it's also sort of this naturalistic fallacy that all of nature is in balance and good and then we're the problem. That's not necessarily true because if slugs could find a way to take over and eat all the vegetation and destroy my lawn, they would. 
It's just there happen to be things in place to stop them from doing it. Uh, but any species under the right conditions would annihilate and destroy the planet. You said a moment ago that you feel like you don't really have sort of a concrete solution. I guess it's not concrete, but I did feel like you, through the book, you sort of deftly arrived, at least in a, a useful way of thinking. And in part, it felt like, I mean, this was a surprise to me, but a delightful surprise that the book kind of became an argument for the importance of love in some ways. You make this beautiful argument of, of like, love also fits into the science of evolution in a certain sense. I love my chickens and they might love me in return. And that makes all of us not just happier, but healthier. It is the happy and healthy animals that pop out the best babies. And that's all evolution cares about. Evolution values love because we value love, even if the universe has no real use for it. Yeah. So what is good from a scientific perspective is hard because good is what philosophers are trying to figure out, not scientists. So trying to meld sort of an ethical philosophical take into biology is tricky. I was just checking out my chickens earlier and little ghost was sitting in my lap and I'm petting her and she's happy and I'm happy. And that's what biology wants is for us to be happy and healthy. You know, she's had food. I've had lunch. We're just sitting there, two beings able to appreciate each other and appreciate the world. And that's literally seems to be what it's all about. Like what else is there? What else is there? If you believe in this argument that pleasure specifically evolved to reward brains, then pleasure is good. And trying to increase pleasure is the path forward. And so, I mean, that's utilitarian philosophy that's been going on for 250 years. You know, you're probably steeped in all the animal rights literature and welfare stuff. And it's all about increasing pleasure and minimizing pain. And so that seems to me beautiful, like because we can conceive of a world where we're nice to animals or nice to each other and not destroying things. We have that capacity. And so we could try and realize such a world. And that's that's what makes our intelligence beautiful. The question is, will we do that? And I mean, the world, let's not be too fanciful in the sense that the world out there is filled with animals killing each other. This is completely the way things are. There's not a lot of love when you're like chopping the head off of something you want to eat. But at the same time, the level of pain that humans are bringing to the planet is unprecedented. So we can we can roll that back a little bit and sort of create more pleasure if we can find a way there. I think what I was trying to do with the book is to be aware that like human intelligence Acknowledging that it might be a problem, it's not just like the best thing that ever happened and we should be so excited. It actually is something we need to worry about because it's a problem. And I think reframing that, it helps you to appreciate other species who aren't destroying the planet because of the way that they think and makes you a little more humble about ourselves and therefore more willing to want to create with more pleasure and love and help the world. I'm just curious, like through, through writing this book or through all of the, the research that preceded this book throughout your career, I'm curious you know, if you have a way that you think it makes sense for human beings to think about their place in this world. Oh, yeah, that's a pretty, I mean, yeah, obviously we we are part of the world. So like I was saying with naturalistic fallacy folks or noble savage issues, like these are poor ways of thinking about the world. We are here, we are a part of the biological world, but our intellect and our culture sit a little bit of on, on top of it. And so that that is the reality of humanity at the moment. We can't go back to the way things were. We're like, it's going to be difficult to not have the internet anymore. I feel like launching a bunch of satellites, we're going to have the internet long after humans are dead, you know. So accepting what we are now and what we have done is the key to stopping us from destroying the planet. I, I don't think we need to roll back everything. We just need to refocus our efforts on less destructive ways of interacting with the environment. And 
there are people trying to do this. There are political movements. There are social movements. It's right there for the taking. I think it's just getting a critical mass of people on board, accepting that the world is in danger, accepting that we are the cause and deciding collectively to fix it. So we can remain part of this world because we are part of this world. Natural selection doesn't care about anything. It's not teleological. We're not going in a direction for more complexity or more intelligence. We're just another thing that cropped up on this planet. And, and it'd be nice if we continued to have a planet to hang out on. I was struck early on in the book where you mentioned the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, how essentially search for extraterrestrial, quote, intelligence is looking for, at this point, looking for sort of radio signals from other planets, which means we as humans were only intelligent as of a little more than 100 years ago. And it, it seems likely that our technologies can advance enough that we won't still be broadcasting radio. And so we'll stop being intelligent. And so this absurdity of, of what intelligence is. Yeah, I was speaking with someone else about this as well, about extraterrestrial intelligence. There's an, a writer named Eric Kirschenbaum who wrote a book on how intelligent life might look. We always assume it's based on a sort of a biological system that was subjected to natural selection because that's the only way we know life could evolve the way it did here. But you could have a being so fundamentally different in terms of its intelligence, and yet it could build like a superstructure or travel through time or travel through space. And we might not even recognize it when it was here because it was so different from the way we are. Because we, again, we're, we're a biological primate mammalian species that cropped up to do what we're doing. Lord knows what the world would look like if we had evolved from slugs or insects or one of these other non-natural selection biological organisms. Who knows? So intelligence is, and depending on how you define it, like you say, radio waves, like, can you make radio waves? Okay, fine, great. Can you time travel? Or can you like, you know, travel between different solar systems? That might be a better metric for intelligence. And we're not there yet. So that's all very arbitrary. To me, as I've dug into this issue, I'm also like, oh, there could be, you know, a planet out there filled with dolphins, or there could be a planet out there filled with sort of human beings as of 200 years ago that chose not to go beyond that stage. And we would never know that would be so incredible. And yet that's not enough. And to me, that that has become a helpful way of like thinking about what this idea of intelligence is and isn't and what value it has. Just like picturing a world that is obviously intelligent, but not intelligent enough to, to get to that communication. One other thing that, that I feel like maybe I should ask about. There's one review I read that was admiring, but talked about your discussion of your chickens and sort of made this point of like, well, I think I'd still rather be human than be like caught in this pecking order. So I was curious what you make of that, because it seems to be sort of like there's a logical flaw somewhere in there, this sort of like inability to get out of, of our human centricness in that. Well, but that's all like the world's most subjective guess as to what my chickens are going through. Like they could be miserable all day long, worrying about when they're going to get mounted by the rooster and living lives of abject terror. I don't think that they are, but it is true. Like if you're lower on the hierarchy as a chicken, your day is relatively stressful compared to the one at the top of the pecking order. But that's why I'm saying in a sort of utopian argument, like the happiest human versus the happiest chicken or the average wild chicken versus the average wild human, who would be happier? And I'm just making a total stab in the dark to say, so I could be very big wrong, but like, I just think that my level of existential crisis, if you totaled it up over the course of my life, would make me more miserable than my cat or my chicken, probably. But I, I don't know. The book review is correct. Like, it depends on the chicken. It depends on the person. And it depends on all of these other things I have no way of knowing. I can't get inside the chicken's brain.
the obvious rejoinder to that review is like, you, yes, you reviewer who's writing for a major publication, like would rather be you than a chicken, but there are a lot of other humans in the world that are at the bottom of the pecking order that we've created for humans. Well, that's what I mean, because like complaining about my existential crises or whatever, but I, like, I live an insane life of privilege where I am in Canada as a middle-aged white guy. Like it doesn't really get any better. This, and I'm still miserable, which is pathetic because like there are people leading like objectively poorer lives than me, pretty much anyone. So yeah, I'd say your average person can be fairly miserable. It can be hard. It, life is difficult. And my chickens seem happier than your average person. I swear, I swear that's true. But I could be wrong. No, I believe my, my cat definitely seems happier than the average person. So, well, thank you, Justin. I really appreciate you taking us out. This has been a great conversation. Yeah, this has been a lot of fun. That's it for this week. And I should let you know, this is the second to last episode in our first season. Thanks as always for listening. And as always, if you want to help out the show, the best thing you can do is give us a review on Apple Podcasts or even better, tell someone to tune in. We'll be back in two weeks for our last show of the season to talk about space travel and how it might push us to rethink our relationship with Earth. Production on Rewild is by me and Peter Buckley with original theme music by R. Cole Furlow. 